Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is a podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal, by interviewing the paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of each paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask the authors after reading the paper. Hello and welcome back to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. I'm Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. And today I'm kicking off Season 4 of BAPCAST with a little bit of a different type of episode. The frequent listeners will know that our episodes are based around the most recent issues of Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal. In one of the latest issues, I saw two papers focused on the same issue, really, and I thought it would be interesting to bring on both papers' first authors to discuss the papers in a panel-style discussion instead of coming on individually. Much to my joy, both authors agreed, so I'm very excited to bring you Kendra Guinness to talk about her paper, Program Characteristics and Certification Examination Pass Rates, a statistical analysis of BACB published 2015 to 2019 data, and Eric Dubuque to talk about his paper, An Investigation of BCBA Exam Pass Rates as a Quality Indicator of Applied Behavior Analysis Training Programs. Kendra received her Ph.D. in Behavior Analysis from Simmons University under the mentorship of Philip Chase. She has taught coursework in psychology and behavior analysis at the undergraduate and graduate levels and is currently an adjunct instructor at Regis College. Eric serves as the director of the Autism Commission on Quality, or ACQ, an industry-wide accreditation program designed to promote quality care for individuals with autism receiving applied behavior analysis services. Frequent listeners of BAPCAST will also recognize Eric's name from his previous episode on the show where he talked about national provider identifiers and issues related to that. I'm really excited about today's episode, so without further ado, Here's my interview with Kendra Guinness and Eric Dubuque. Hello, Kendra and Eric. Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. I'm excited to have you both on. Today's episode is going to be a little different than usual for for our loyal listeners. This is going to be a little different than the way we usually set things up. When I was looking at the upcoming issue, Behavior Analysis and Practice, that'll be out by the time this episode airs. I saw two papers that I'd actually already sort of been in contact with and was a fan of prior to, to seeing them come out in the issue, one being by Kendra and her co-author, Kylan Turner, titled Program Characteristics and Certification Exam Pass Rates, a Statistical Analysis 
of BC, or I'm sorry, BACB published 2015 to 2019 data. And Eric's paper with his co-author, Ella Gazemi, titled An Investigation of BCBA Exam Pass Rates as a Quality Indicator of Applied Behavior Analysis Training Programs. Both of these papers seem to be focused on quality of graduate training programs and based around the BCBA exam pass rates. As a graduate program director, I'm very much interested in sort of quality indicators and, and a lot of my role is, is thinking about the BCBA exam pass rates and making sure that we're setting up our students to be successful behavior analysts. And part of that is being able to pass the BCBA exam. And so I had already read these papers. I was already a fan of these papers. And when I saw them coming out in the same issue, which is how we sort of base our seasons on the show, I thought, hey, instead of bringing them on separately or only bringing one on or something like that, could we potentially bring on both first authors to talk about both papers, but also talk about the the connection between the papers and the overall theme. And both Kendra and Eric were kind enough to agree to this arrangement. And so I'm really excited to bring this sort of different style of episode as sort of a special episode on the topic. Now, I briefly sort of introduced the topic here, but before we dive into it, we always like to hear a little bit about our authors or guests on the show. And so would each of you mind introducing yourself, maybe say what your current role is, what, why you're interested in this overall topic, and, and maybe any sort of background that would be helpful in understanding you as a behavior analyst. Sure. Um, well, thank you for the introduction, Cody. My name is Kendra Guinness. Um, I'm a recent graduate of the uh, behavior analysis program at Simmons University. Um, and currently I'm an adjunct instructor at Regis College. Um, and I really kind of found my way to this topic, both because um, my primary research interest is applications of behavior analysis in higher education, um, but also this project was actually born out of one of the courses in my doctoral program. Um, so we, we take a class at Simmons on um, statistics and group design, and it was designed and taught by my wonderful co-author, uh, Dr. Kylan Turner. Um, so for the project, we just had to come up with some sort of research proposal um, involving a statistical analysis. Um, and we had a lot of options. We could kind of think of uh, some hypothetical data that we could analyze. Uh, but then my mind kind of went to the fact that the BACB publishes these data on, on pass rates and if we could do some statistical analyses. Um, so that is how this, this project was born. Very cool. I always love hearing about sort of practical outcomes of, of course-related projects. Really, really great sort of use of class time and, and the student's time and the professor's time. And, and we'll talk about exactly what you did sort of within that project momentarily, but great to hear. Glad. Thank you for sharing that. Eric, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. And I also want to compliment Kendra and her co-author on her paper. They did a great job on that. We actually cited it in our own paper. So thank you. We appreciate kind of standing on the shoulders of giants here. Um, so my name is Eric Dubuque, and I currently serve as a director of the Autism Commission on Quality, um, <clears throat> which is an accrediting body for organizations that serve individuals with autism using ABA. 
Um, I do want to acknowledge my co-author on my paper, Dr. Ellie Pizemi, uh, who's fantastic. And it was really wonderful having her insight um, and her assistance to work on this project together. And so I definitely want to acknowledge her. Uh, prior to my current role, I actually served as um, a program director for master's degree programs in applied behavior analysis across two universities. And I did this for a decade. Um, and so I obviously had an interest as well in trying to ensure that we were offering quality training to our students there and trying to help to identify like, what does it mean to you know, have a quality program? Um, I also have a background as, the, as a part-time accreditation administrator for the Association for Behavior Analysis International. Um, and several of my previous research projects have looked at um, quality indicators or um, access to quality care, um, including an NPI paper I published a, a few years back. Um, and then I've had some roles um, where I've been able to uh, help shape policies um, and regulations as it applies to ABA services, including serving as the chair of the Kentucky Applied Behavior Analysis Licensure Board. And so I think, uh, you know, there's, there's been a, a lot of interest in quality control, and I'm, I'm still working in that area, just in a, 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 different, a different industry right now, um, from training programs to service organizations. Thanks for sharing that. And for the frequent listeners, you're going to probably remember Eric's name. And when he talked about his paper on NPI, we had Eric on. It feels like a decade ago, but I know that's not true because the podcast hasn't been around that long. But, you know, time flies. It's, I don't know, maybe been a year or two probably since he was on the show talking about that. And so I I, I am often feel guilty when I ask people to come back on the show because, you know, it takes prep to prepare for something like this. So I really appreciate Eric's time and coming back on. And of course, Kendra's time and being a first time guest on the show. To segue things into the topic at hand, again, thinking about quality of, of training programs, and then again, how the BCBA exam pass rates sort of relate to that. Can we start by sort of talking about why quality of training programs is important? Like, why is this a topic that behavior analysts or potentially people interested in becoming behavior analysts should care about? Like, why does this warrant, you know, multiple publications and multiple research projects looking at this topic? I think the uh, broadest application of kind of assessing program quality really comes from marketing when, when students are, or potential graduate students are thinking about where they want to pursue their graduate degree in behavior analysis, um, looking at that kind of objective, this is the pass rate on the certification exam, um, is sort of an easy metric. Um, it's something that can be publishable. It's easily comparable across um, different programs. Um, there certainly are several other metrics. Um, and in our paper, we, we cited some, some previous research looking at things like research productivity of uh, faculty or mo models of practicum delivery. Um, but as far as kind of what uh, potential students will have access to as far as the, the information they will have access to to make those decisions on which program they want to apply to. Um, exam pass rates is kind of one of the most um, salient and readily available metrics. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. I know, again, in my role as a, a program director, 
I've got a really supportive administration here at Salve, but one of my sort of first focuses when, when I when I took on this role was educating them about the importance of the BCBA exam pass rate. And and one of the big pieces I talked about was was the point you made, Kendra, which is this is what people see. Like from a from an organizational standpoint, there's a lot of reasons we should care about. Um, BCBA, uh, BCBA exam pass rates and and uh, uh, Eric I'm sure you'll have other things to say on this as well in a moment um, but just even from just a, like you were saying Kendra the saliency of how obvious this can be to potential students really really important Eric other thoughts on on why quality is so important yeah and those are, those are some excellent points and I agree with everything that's been said so far but I, I want to kind of mention some other quality indicators that have been talked about by other authors and researchers that have looked at this have been things like faculty research productivity job analysis studies postgraduate publications presentations employer and consumer surveys uh, the exam pass rates are really interesting because it is like a quantifiable measure there but I do want to emphasize here because I think it's relevant to both of our papers here Kendra is that passage of a BACB certification exam is not a demonstration that somebody is an expert in behavior analysis. It's a demonstration that somebody has, you know, passed a test that measures minimal competence, right? And so even when we talk about the BACB exam rates as like a quality indicator, I mean, passing an exam that measures minimal, minimal competence, I guess sort of quality, um, but the fact is that there's a lot of programs here that are not living up to that in terms of the candidates that they're producing and whether they're able to pass an exam that measures minimal competence. And so it's a quality indicator in a way, but it's also like kind of like the floor, right? And so it's uh, so when we look at, you know, what, or what, what training programs are doing in terms of the, the candidates that they're able to produce, you know, I think we need to keep that in mind and what that number actually means. I think that's a really good point, Eric. Um, you use that term kind of minimal competency, which I think is uh, really important to remember here, um, especially when program directors like like Cody and others are, are talking to college administration um, about indicators of program quality. Um, yes, pass rate is kind of an easy objective marker of that, but those additional things like how many graduates go on to then maybe pursue a PhD program um, or publish papers or present at conferences, um, even thinking about what is a quality marker of a really solid BCBA. Um, we don't really have that other than that, pass, that passing the exam is that minimal competency. Um, so while it is a very salient metric, um, I think absolutely we need to interpret it with, with caution because um, it is really that floor of, of a quality metric. Yeah, awesome distinction and, and point on that. I think... It's helpful to set this whole conversation in context of we're, we're interested in quality training programs, but ultimately yeah, the BCBA pass rate is ultimately the sort of the bare minimum, right, or, or the floor of, of that. And there are other quality indicators. So, so why not target some of those other quality indicators in each of your perspective uh, papers? Why is the BCBA exam pass rate uh, something that is sort of worth investigating in its own right? Well, I, you know, I, I think those other metrics are certainly worth looking at. And I think other authors have looked at. I know uh, Dixon had published a paper and his colleagues, uh, Mark Dixon, Dr. Dixon. Um, and um, I think other folks have also tried to perform other analyses. 
Uh, the exam pass rates, as you know, Kendra had alluded to earlier, what's nice about that is it's, you know, it's a quantifiable number and it's one that can be applied across organizations. So at the risk of being accused of being lazy, it was relatively an easier metric to kind of collect publicly available data on and to uh, construct some analyses around. And there's some general recognition as well from even the folks who have written these other papers um, about using that metric to evaluate quality across organizations or across training programs. Um, I absolutely agree. I think uh, this is something we talked about in our paper, um, also citing some of that previous work. Um, you mentioned Dr. Dixon's paper. Uh, there were also a couple of publications um, by Shepley and colleagues that we referenced, um, where they were looking at different variables that might be contributors um, to program quality. Uh, but what we wanted to emphasize in our paper was analyzing that publicly available um, BACB published data. Um, so the, the previous studies had, had gone through an IRB and had, had th those authors had gone and collected data, whether it was uh, reviewing syllabi from different courses um, or looking at things like um, research productivity of faculty. But an individual who's considering a graduate program in behavior analysis isn't going to readily have access to that information. So we really wanted to focus on that information that was published by the BACB um, that consumers have access to. That's an excellent point. Uh, I really appreciate that. And to add to that too, you know, in terms of what adds value to um, students who are pursuing a degree uh, or training in the field, that credential is really important when you consider what funders are looking for before they will credential a provider. So if you're looking to offer AB as a healthcare service, for example, and you want to get reimbursement from a third-party payer, generally speaking, or if you're trying to get licensed in a state, um, you are going to need that credential. And so from a practical purpose, it also just generally makes sense. It's like, this is important, you know, for, for students to be able to get this credential. And is that the outcome that is likely if I receive my training from this program? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I always talk to my students about, you know, my job ultimately is to prepare them to be quality behavior analysts, right? In order for them to become a behavior analyst, they have to pass the BCBA exam, right? So I don't overly focus on the BCBA exam, but I am aware that I need to, you know, prepare my students to pass that exam so they can ultimately go on to be, you know, quality, successful behavior analysts, as we talked about sort of that, that minimum sort of bar standard in that way. And I think that that makes sense. And I think, I, you know, you sort of talked about it. it's maybe not the sort of the perfect comparison just because it is sort of a, a minimum bar, but at least it's equal across programs, right? Like if I always think about with research publications and, and of course research publications is a, is a really important measure and something to consider. One of the complications is that if you're trying to compare programs, you might have someone at a program who does, let's say, like research with a lot of participants, or maybe they're doing sort of longevity research or whatever. So maybe they're not producing the same number of publications, but they're still producing, you know, super high quality, important publications. How do you compare that? How do you compare one publication to another, or even three publications to one publication. There are ways of doing it, obviously, but it's much more complicated. And there's certainly 
a lot more room for argument, whereas the, the BCBA pass rate is, okay, what did the program get, sort of? What, what are we looking at here? They're pretty, pretty easy to compare the programs with. And so both of your papers ultimately did that. It was looking at different variables that seem to be associated with different pass rates or, or correlated with different pass rates. Kendra, could you speak about the, the specific variables you were looking at in your paper? Sure. So the variables that we chose, again, were based on the variables that were in that BACB publication. So alongside the pass rate for each verified course sequence, or DCS, um, the BACB included a program mode. Um, and there were four program modes reported by the BACB. So one being a distance program, in other words, an online program, one being an on-campus program where all courses were taught in person. And then they had two other designations. Um, and the way that the BACB specified for these designations is a hybrid program um, in which students attended some of their courses on campus, some of their courses online. Um, but they also had this designation of both, meaning that students would either choose um, to go a purely on-campus route or a purely online route. Um, but it's also important to note that um, some universities have two different DCS numbers if they have the same program. So for example, um, I just know from familiarity, Simmons University has both an on-campus program and an online program. Um, however, they are two separate verified course sequences. Um, so their pass rates are reported separately and they're reported as an on-campus program and a a distance program by these designations, not Simmons University is, is both. Um, so I think that is important to remember as we're kind of interpreting these results is these are the designations that the, the BACD um, defined, um, but certainly maybe there is some room for, for more clearly defining those designations. Um, and then the second variable that we analyzed was the number of first time candidates. Um, so this is also included in the publication and simply indicates how many students or candidates uh, sat for the exam in that calendar year from that institution. Um, but the BACB also clarified in the publication, um, there are some, some variables around how those data are reported. Um, so for instance, if a student were to transfer um, between programs midway through their graduate study, that student would not count towards either program um, in their, in their pass rate, um, because I think the justification is, well, we can't know kind of how much each program contributed to, to that student's passing. Um, so that's the other variable that we looked at is how many candidates um, sat for the exam in a particular year. Uh, we'll talk about Eric's variables, but I think it, it might be helpful us to not sort of separate ourselves from, from your variables and your outcomes. Um, we'll talk about those, but before we do that, why were these variables of, of interest to you? Like why, why look at the difference in, in the modality of the program? Sure. So I think program modality is a super hot topic right now. Um, and I gotta say, I did begin this project in fall 2019. So, uh, this was pre COVID, uh, but it was very timely as we see the, uh, the increase in online programs. And that's actually something that I'm working on um, with some colleagues now as a follow-up study, looking at change over time um, in these different, the number of programs across these program modes. Um, 
I thought that was of particular interest because um, actually when I was in grad school as a, as a research assistant um, to one of my professors, they specifically asked me to pull these data um, and we're going to use these data to kind of defend to the college administration um, why they didn't think it was a good idea to start an online program. Um, so that's always something that kind of stayed with me and I thought was interesting as far as are online programs inherently um, of poorer quality than on-campus programs. Um, of course, we can't know that for sure from this type of analysis. Um, it's not a RCT where we're randomly assigning students to either take their coursework online or in person and we're controlling for um, the, the content that is being delivered. But I think it is something that's really important to think about um, as far as the program quality, it's, it's a substantial indicator. And why the interest in the, the number of, of students in the program, or the, I should say the number of students sitting for the exam from the program? Sure. So that's another one where we can't necessarily be certain that it's an indicator of some other variables that I think we are interested in, such as class size. Um, I know when I was in my graduate program, I had eight students in my class, and that was our, our cohort, and we went through all of our classes together, um, and I know that was, that was the experience that I had, um, whereas I've, I've heard from people who've gone to school different places where maybe they were one of 60 um, in a cohort, and maybe their class sizes were a little bit bigger. Um, so are there things like class size, um, ratio of students to faculty, how much um, individualized feedback are students getting? Um, so this was another potential indicator of, of a variable like class size. That's helpful. Now, Eric, you looked at several variables, and I, and I want to save uh, a lot of those variables to sort of stay focused on the ones that Kendra looked at, but you, you looked at some of the same or similar variables that Kendra looked at. Was there any additional rationale or sort of reason you were interested in, in, in the similar variables that Kendra looked at? And then we'll get into your other stuff uh, momentarily. Yeah, since the, since the data set we were working with was publicly available, I think we were probably at analyzing and looking at the same variables. So like institution, VCS number, mode of instruction, pass rate and number of first time candidates. And then from that, we were able to also calculate some other additional values, like total number of first-time candidates per year, overall first-time pass rate per by VCS across reported years, and percentage of exam candidates per VCS. Um, you know, there's a, there's things with the publicly available data set that are probably worthwhile to mention. In that, um, the data set that the BACB puts out there, um, and Kendra actually alluded to this a little bit, it's incomplete. And so, for example, an organization or I'm sorry, a training program that has an initial VCS, um, they wouldn't report their first time pass rates. I think it's for the first four years. Uh, or if the uh, program has less than six candidates, I think sitting for an exam in a given year. And so there are some, I guess, I don't want to say holes, but there's some incompleteness to the data set. I think both of us were working with here. Um, but I think there's still enough information for us to be able to identify some overall trends that appear to be showing up there. Focused on the, the, outcomes or the data you sort of analyze related to these these specific variables. Kendra, could you talk about what what your data ended up showing, what your results were? 
Yes, so we did um, a couple different statistical analyses. Um, and the first question we were kind of looking to answer is, was there a relation between pass rate and number of first-time candidates? Um, so for that, uh, we did a Spearman correlation, and we chose that um, instead of a Pearson correlation because our data were non-normally distributed. Um, I'm doing Kylan proud of uh, all the things that I learned in her class. Um, so that's why we chose this particular test and also because it was slightly more resistant to outliers. Um, and when we put the data on a scatter plot, we saw that there were several outliers. Um, and kind of alluding to what Eric was just saying, because the um, BACB won't report data for um, a VCS that has six or fewer first time candidates, um, when we look at that scatter plot, there are several data points on that, that six candidate um, line. Um, so ultimately what we found is there was a very weak negative correlation between pass rate and the number of first-time candidates. So in other words, more first-time candidates was associated with a lower pass rate. Um, but I do have to have to say again, it was very, very weak, even though it was statistically significant. Um, so that was our kind of our first major finding. Um, next, we compared the pass rates across program modes um, and found that there were in fact uh, statistically significant differences among the different program modes. And then when we conducted some post hoc analyses, we found that those differences really um, lie between uh, campus and distance programs, campus and both programs, um, distance and hybrid programs, and distance and both programs. So there were um, a lot of differences within each program mode. Um, and when you look at the means, we did ultimately find that um, campus programs did have higher pass rates um, than distance programs. Super interesting. Now, uh, Eric, did you find similar or different results when looking at those specific variables? Yeah, and I think uh, Kendra and her co-author, um, their results uh, built off of, uh, or we built off of the results that they had put out there. So we certainly, you know, I think kind of identified like a, a weak correlation as well with the size of the size of the training program or the number of candidates being put out there. Uh, we try to analyze it visually um, instead of the, the statistics, which is probably what we should have done. Uh, but that's why we had you there to be able to do that for us. Um, and then we had some, I think, some additional findings as well that we, we had commented on. Um, I do want to mention, though, before we get into that, is that the verified core sequences that we're talking about here, uh, I think there's some confusion generally in the field where there's a misunderstanding that people think a VCS indicates that a training program is offering quality training, and it's not. A VCS is a paperwork reduction strategy that helps students be able to get through their application when they're applying to sit for an exam. And so unfortunately, I think VCSs, and I'm gonna hopefully have an opportunity to talk a little bit more about this later, VCSs um, are confused with accreditation which is a completely different process and that can be an indicator of quality training that's going on. And so as we're talking about these VCSs here, I just wanted to kind of throw that out there. Um, if it would be helpful, sorry, I, I'm just looking at your paper again, Eric, and I, 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 and I know I've read it, but I just want to make sure I, I understand the nuances, but you were looking at some, some were they correlations specifically between the different, um, the number of first time candidates and the first time pass rates, but what I really like that um, you and your co-author did is you split it apart by program mode. Um, so that's something I think we were also kind of wondering about of 
is there some sort of interaction between um, the program mode and the number of first-time candidates? Because in one of our other analyses, we did find there were statistically significant differences in the number of first-time candidates based on program modes. So distance programs had significantly more first-time candidates than campus programs. Ah, yes. that's interesting to see some, uh, someone who's not super, you know, uh, uh, competent in statistics. Let me make sure I'm, I'm picking up the distinction here. Kendra, you're saying one of the things that Eric did, it was sort of complementary and similar to what you did was looking at number and modality, but, but Eric, you're saying Eric split up across number within the modality. Yeah, I was just looking at your, your figure two, uh, where you were looking at, you have the four program modes. Um, so where myself and Dr. Turner made just one scatter plot, kind of with, with all the data aggregated, I like how you split it up across the different program modes and you can sort of see those, those different relations. Yeah, th thank you. You know, that was that was challenging trying to figure out the best way to depict this. Um, you know, what what we had found there, and I'm sure you had you and your co-author had seen something similar, is that there's a there's outliers. Right. And so most of the programs are relatively small in size, um, but there's a very few large, uh, primarily distance programs that are out there and they're having a an outsized influence on the training of behavior analysts. And so when we get into the, some of the findings I think we had found, there's some, I think, what are shocking um, findings there in terms of like the number of training programs that are actually producing the vast majority of folks who are sitting for a BCBA exam. And, and I think that's a good segue into talking about some of the other variables you looked at in addition to modality and, and numbers. Eric, can you talk about some of the, the additional variables your paper looked at? Sure, I'd be happy to. And so we were looking at uh, things like the total number of first-time exam candidates completing a VCS, percentage of candidates per VCS, differences in first-time pass rates by mode of instruction, uh, percentage of candidates by overall VCS first-time pass rates. Uh, we also looked at the potential impact of ABA ABAI accreditation, the Association for Behavior Analysis International Accreditation on first-time pass rates, which is also something our colleague, uh, Dr. Shepley and her, her, her co-authors had also looked at in their paper that uh, Kendra had mentioned earlier, which is also another fantastic piece that we had uh, stood, stood on the shoulders of. And then we were looking at changes in first-time pass rates within individual VCS across time to see if there's, you know, is there improvement across time the longer the VCS is, uh, is open for. Um, and, you know, so I, those are the variables that we had looked at. There's some other paths that we were looking at when we were developing the paper, but those are the ones that I think uh, we, we had settled on and bore some fruit, so to speak. Before we jump into the sort of results of what you saw within those variables, I think the distinction between a, a VCS and an accredited program probably warrants a bit of discussion. So could you talk about sort of what those two indicators mean and, and really uh, why the distinction is so important. Yeah, so um, I hope you don't mind, Kendra, if I jump in on this one. Um, so a, a verified course sequence, once again, I mentioned this, it's, it's, a, it's a paperwork reduction strategy, right? So the way a training program gets a VCS designation is they send in syllabi that indicate that the coursework that they're covering covers the course content areas that the certification board is looking for. Uh, although now the VCS is now owned by ABAI. And so now it's what ABI is looking, looking for. And so a training program director sends in their syllabi um, and their syllabi is supposed to demonstrate that 
coverage, you know, extends across the content hours that are required um, to get the BCS designation. And that's it. And so, you know, there's not a review. You're not looking at like, you know, faculty to student ratios. You're not looking at, you know, any, any other metric there um, that might potentially be important or indicate that that training program is actually offering quality services. It's, it's like a syllabus review just to kind of check off some boxes. Okay, it looks like they have, you know, these many hours that are covered. We're good to go. And that's not to say that's not useful and it's not helpful. It can indicate once again, exactly what it's supposed to indicate. But it's not, uh, it doesn't mean that a program is offering um, quality training, right? And this is, uh, this is something that I actually struggled with when I used to be the ABI accreditation administrator. I would talk to people about the importance of accreditation. And ABI, ABAI has had an accreditation program since the early 90s. And to date, there's, I think, a little over 30 training programs that have accreditation. And there should be so many more. VCS was established, was it like in 2007 or something like that? Or the BACB started in 2001. And, you know, I mean, we have like over 500 VCS uh, now. And it's, you know, and it's too bad because when I would talk to people about accreditation, they would say, why do I need that? I already have a VCS. And so accreditation means you actually have independent reviewers. You have a self-study where the organization is looking at you know, are they able to match certain standards that have been decided by, you know, a group of stakeholders? And um, can they open themselves up to uh, peer review where you have independent, uh, an indep independent re reviewers or evaluators coming in to see if the organization actually meets the standards that are supposed to indicate quality training? And so we really do need a push in our field towards accreditation within our training programs. It is, it is of dire importance. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want to sort of bury the lead and, and, and sort of forget about talking about your actual results, but to talk a little bit about accreditation versus BCS and the overall importance of that, do you think that the BACB announcement that they are going to require that the person's degree is someone who's sitting for the exam's degree to come from an accredited program in 10 years. Do you think that that will help push programs toward accreditation and help clarify the difference between BCS and accredited programs? Um, it's really helpful for you to clarify that distinction between the BCS as a, as a paperwork reduction strategy, whereas accreditation indicates that, um, that independent review of content. Um, and I think it's possible that um, moving towards requiring accreditation, if we're going to define accreditation as having that independent review, um, will help increase the quality of our training programs. Um, but I know the BACB is also, or sorry, uh, excuse me, ABAI is also looking at this tiered model of education where different programs are going to have um, sort of different rankings and recognitions based on different attributes that they have. Um, so I'm, I'm certainly not, not fluent in, in what that program is going to involve, but, it, but it's possible that we also might be getting more information about the um, characteristics of each program. Um, so I know something we talked about in our discussion is, is wanting more information uh, published by the BACB if possible. So other variables that might contribute to program quality, whether it's the uh, mode of practicum delivery or whether students are required to do a thesis or a capstone project. 
um, having that additional information uh, readily available to consumers when they make their decisions on which programs to apply to. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, I, I agree. More information, the better. Eric, any, any additional thoughts on, on the BACB requirement around the, the requiring degrees being from accredited programs in 10 years? I have a lot of thoughts on this, but I should probably be careful how far I stand on the soapbox. Um, so, you know, getting into the, the results really quickly here, we did find that there was a correlation there between programs that had VCSs uh, that were housed within ABI accredited programs versus VCSs that were not. There's about a 10 percentage point di difference um, on first time pass rates. And I think it's, you know, I'm really happy that the BACB is moving in this direction. And I understand why it didn't happen sooner, but I wish it had happened sooner. The problem with accreditation is that there wasn't a great carrot for us to be able to uh, promote accreditation. With VCSs, you know, there is a pretty easy carrot there because you need to be able to complete coursework hours in order to qualify to sit for an exam. And we didn't really have the same carrot with ABI accreditation. And so by incorporating it and making it uh, part or a contingency that's part of qualifying to sit for an ABA for a BACB exam, uh, I think that is fantastic. I would also like to see, by the way, it added into our state licensure laws, where there's a grandfathering in clause that says something like, pro, you know, students or sorry, not students, providers interested in receiving a license from the state need to have come from an ABI accredited program or some other accreditation there. There needs to be some kind of recognition there of quality, uh, quality training that's being offered there. That's interesting. I haven't really, you know, heard anyone talk much about the idea of increasing the state licensing requirements, which for right now in many of the states is, is simply having a BCBA credential, but perhaps if they added on sort of more language, more requirements around the indication of the quality of the program that that person was coming from, uh, might be helpful in ensuring the quality uh, of, of the clinician. Uh, maybe circling back to overall quality stuff in a moment, but to sort of finish out our discussion of the results from your different studies. We talked about Kendra's results, Eric, and we sort of piecemealed in a couple of your different results, but could you, could you talk about the rest of the results? Any other big correlations or pieces of information that sort of stand out in, in your, your results? Yeah, I mean, there's there a few general pieces here that I think won't be too surprising. So first of all, all almost all BCBA exam candidates completed their coursework at a BCS. Um, between 2013 and, you know, 2020, the overall first-time pass rate across everybody was about 64%. Um, however, one of the main findings that was really shocking was that we had discovered that just nine out of the 188, or was it 223 BCSs that we looked at, were responsible for training over half of the BCB exam candidates. That seems crazy to me. We have nine training programs that are responsible for over half the people sitting for a BCBA exam. And when you look at those exam first-time pass rates across some of those larger programs, many of them, they're not up to snuff. And we're not going to name any names here. If you guys want to know like who these training programs are, go to the BACB's website. You can look up those first-time pass rates yourself and see who's up there. Um, but I have to say, these training programs, not accredited. They're pumping out a lot of students here. And, you know, I think there's some real concern here about doing the bare minimum 
to help somebody qualify to pass a test that measures the bare minimum. I don't want to be in a, and I don't want to be part of a part, part of that where we are trying to push for minimal standards. I want us to push for excellence. And I think that's why we need to kind of rally around accreditation, some of these independent reviews here, so we can push for these training programs, especially some of these larger ones, to begin investing, not just in trying to train as many students as possible, to make sure, but to make sure that they actually have quality indicators in place, that they actually have quality controls in place to make sure that they're doing good training. Because ultimately who gets impacted here are the clients that we're supposed to be serving. I think that's a really good point, Eric. And that is a pretty startling finding that so few programs are responsible for um, putting out this, this major proportion of the, of the candidates. Um, yeah, one additional variable that we looked at was the mean number of first-time candidates who did pass the exam. Um, so this is a measure we simply derived by multiplying the number of first-time candidates by the pass rate. Um, and so while we did find that, for instance, distance programs had a significantly larger number of first-time passing candidates, they averaged around 55 compared to about 10 for a campus program, um, and that might be of interest if, if someone's considering um, kind of how many behavior analysts um, is, is a program producing. But I think to your point, Eric, of, again, this is just needing that minimal competency of passing the exam. Um, so if this information is being used for decision-making by college administrators, maybe deciding on whether or not to start a program and whether that program should be on campus or, um, or via online learning. Um, again, I would, I would urge caution in interpreting those results. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think, I think another, another finding that, you know, was kind of shocking was that only 61% of the candidates completed their coursework at a VCS with a first time pass rate at or above 60%. So once again, you know, the vast majority of folks who are sitting for these, these exams here, they're, they're attending, you know, a VCS or have completed their training at a, at, a, at a VCS, we're only 60% or fewer of the first-time candidates have actually passed their exam. That's scary. Once again, I want to remind, uh, I guess, the audience here that, you know, the BACB exam or BCBA exam measures minimal competency to practice independently. It's not even a measure of, you know, expertise. Yeah, that's, that's a wild statistic. And this whole conversation around just the sheer number of, of students who are going through programs that, as you're saying, may not be adequately preparing them to pass the BCBA exam, which again, is that absolutely bare minimum standard is, is very concerning. And as you sort of touched on, Eric, why do we care so much about this? Why is there the need for research? Why are we having this conversation? Because as you said, it impacts the clients, right? If, if, we're, if we're producing students who maybe are squeaking by or just passing the BCBA exam, it's not going to bode well for their clinical skills that are impacting the people we work with, which in many cases are some of the most vulnerable populations you can imagine, right? And, and obviously we all care on this call, and I'm sure all the listeners care a great deal about being able to provide high quality service to these individuals. I have one more thing here, if that's okay. Um, I want to give you an example here about why training to the bare minimum 
um, is not where we should be at. And so, for example, the certification board, you know, they they put out a general credential, a general practitioner credential for behavior analysis. However, when somebody graduates from a training program, they're not generally practicing ABA. Typically, they're working in healthcare or education or maybe, you know, organizations with OBM. Um, but if you are work, if you are receiving your education at a tra training program that's doing the bare minimum, checking off the boxes just so somebody can sit for a general practitioner exam, without offering additional training in the industry where they will end up working, then what does that mean when they actually when the when these folks have to actually go out and start working at these agencies? And so what happens is we have a lot of providers I think who are going out who maybe are working in healthcare and don't know basic terminology what medical necessity means or they don't really know how to do clinical documentation. They don't know how to do some of those industry specific skill sets that are really important if we're gonna offer quality services. Of course you need to know how to do ABA, but what about the context under which ABA is applied? And so I think, um, you know, just checking the boxes here, just to sit for a BCBA exam, it's clearly not enough. I absolutely agree, Eric. I think um, if we kind of think of the analogy of in the medical field, um, uh, in order to, to become a physician, yes, you have to graduate from medical school, um, but that's just the first step. Um, then there's residency and additional specializations and additional um, uh, certification exams that need to be passed. Um, so sometimes uh, when I'm teaching first year students, I might say, okay, we're in this very first class right now and I'm trying to teach you about the parts of the body. So in a semester or two, I can teach you how to do brain surgery, um, which again is kind of wild if you, if you think about um, kind of the, the length of time we spend on these different concepts, uh, but I'll, I won't get on that soapbox. Um, so, but I think there's also some interesting work coming out. Um, I don't remember the specific authors, but I I think I remember seeing an article in BAP on different types of like apprenticeship models of once you pass that BCBA exam, um, are you necessarily ready to be an independent clinician? I think we, we hit that minimal competency, but programs that have, um, so for instance, one organization where I worked had a nice model where they um, had a position called a junior practitioner. And it was for recent BCBA grads um, who did a combination of direct therapy, um, as well as working closely under the supervision of a more senior BCBA um, as they built their BCBA skills. I think we're moving towards that, especially with the new um, BACB requirement around supervision, now that uh, BCBAs in their first year post-certification um, need additional supervision when they're supervising uh, BCBA trainees. But I think continuing to, to look to other fields um, as far as the model for which we, we operate our training under, um, and how can we make sure that we're not just hitting that minimum bar, but we're really putting out high quality clinicians? And that pr apprenticeship apprenticeship paper that you had cited there, that was uh, Dr. Hartley, Tim Courtney, Mary Rosam, and uh, Vincent Lamarca. It's an excellent paper. There's some great papers there that kind of talk about how we can do a better job um, with our fieldwork training too, which is part of it. But even the fieldwork piece is not part of a VCS, right? It's just the didactic coursework there. So there's other elements here, I think, where we can pull in where, yeah, we need to improve the education we're offering, but also our fieldwork experience as well needs to, we need to do a better job around that too. I often think about the fact that undergraduate students studying education are required to do student teaching. 
to become licensed teachers. Yeah, at our we we obviously have our our supervision requirements to sit for the exam, but they are not necessarily embedded in the graduate training programs, right? If if it's just a VCS accreditation, yes, it's embedded, it's required. But, you know, undergraduate teaching requirements in some ways is more strenuous and more rigorous than VCS requirements, at least in that way, right? And clearly that matters, right? Clearly having high quality supervision is not just that I'm working at my clinic and they're signing off on my hours that I have sort of intentional experiences with supervisors who are, are pushing me to learn the skills that I need is absolutely critical. And, and Kendra, I love your sort of example with thinking about this in terms of the equivalent of what that would look like in the medical profession. If, if, if surgeons were trained to the degree that which behavior analysts are trained, how would we feel about going into a basic surgery? Right. Surgeons are obviously trained to a very high degree. So the, the ability to set standards at that level and the ability to train at that level obviously exists. Yeah. You know, as behavior analysts, we sort of, we sort of pride ourselves in the ability to like train at an extremely high level and know about training and education. Yet we're not really applying it to our own field in every way, it's, you know, especially within those BCS standards, right? So some pieces uh, sort of that I often think about related to those things. Yeah. And, and, you know, I also want to add in, so in my current role, you know, I'm serving as a director of the Office of Commission on Quality. Um, and over the past year, we've been trying to develop accreditation standards for service organizations providing ABA services to individuals with autism. And when we were developing the standards, I remember we had many, many meetings with many, many different organizations. And the topic of conversation was, what do you identify as the largest quality control issues that are currently happening in the field? And across every single one of those meetings, without exception, the issue related to preparedness of providers came up every single time. And so... Quite frankly, when you keep hearing that over and over again, that, hey, our providers are coming out and they do not have the expertise they should have, even as a starting practitioner, it, it becomes very concerning. And so I think, um, and like I said, this is, this is across many, many meetings with a variety of different providers representing different sizes, types, working, in, working across locations and settings. I mean, it's a, it is a consistent issue that is reported on by CEOs and executives within these organizations that are looking to hire these folks. They're looking at it as like, we have an unprepared workforce that's coming out right now. Yeah, I think in many ways, it's uh, the worst kept secret, right? That, that our field hasn't quite figured out the training requirements and set up. You know, I talked about like the sur surgery thing, like not wanting to go under surgery with someone who hasn't been trained to the level that we expect surgeons to be trained at. And I, you know, people could push back and go, well, we're not doing surgery. So, okay, fair enough. Uh, my partner is a clinical psychologist. We started school at the same time. I, we finished our coursework roughly around the same time. And she had to get, you know, clinical supervision hours through her, through her master's and PhD, same, same as I did, uh, getting my, my degree in behavior analysis. Then when she finished her PhD, she had to do a pre-doc year-long internship of getting supervised hours. Then when she finished her PhD, she had to do another year-long internship 
with a with a postdoctoral fellowship before she could actually practice independently in, in virtually any state, but, you know, here in Rhode Island as well. To look at the comparison to my training requirements, I could practice independently when I finished my master's degree, right? And at the time, it was the 750 hours. That was it. That was the last time I had to be supervised. So is clinical psychology inherently more complicated and, and more difficult to implement than behavior analysis? I don't, I don't think so. I think it's a pretty fair comparison to look at clinical psychology and behavior analysis. And, and, and the training requirements within those fields are completely different at this point. Absolutely, Cody. And that's a, that's a helpful comparison to kind of think of a, a related field like clinical psychology. Is it inherently more complicated, uh, but having that much more rigorous training? And what you just said about um, like, okay, yeah, maybe we're not doing brain surgery. We also have to remember, we are still working with probably some of the most vulnerable populations. Um, and the fact that, that we can go from graduate student to practitioner so quickly, um, to kind of go back to that medical analogy, it is kind of wild to think about, okay, can you imagine if I'm teaching my, my concept and principles class, where we're just trying to master the concepts of reinforcement and punishment and extinction, um, but then exactly a year from now, I'm getting you ready to, to do brain surgery, um, whether that's for writing IEPs, designing analysis protocols, um, and sending those, those graduate students out into the world to be responsible for the care and well-being of some very vulnerable individuals. Um, so it is, it is very startling, and I think that's why this topic is still so important. I'm going to add, add in there, too, you know, one of, the, uh, one of the major problems we have right now is that there's not nearly enough providers to be able to meet the need. And so, you know, I think there was a 2000, over a 2,000 percent or around a 2,000 percent increase in job demand for behavior analysts in the last job demand report uh, published by the Behavior Analyst Certification Board. And so there is a crazy need for more providers here. And obviously, if you're going to increase the training requirements, then that's going to take longer for folks to be able to get out and be able to practice and be able to help people. And so there's certainly a balance here that needs to be considered. Uh, right now, unfortunately, because the job demand is so high, it's kind of like, I just need to get my credential no matter what. And I want to do it as quickly as possible so I can get out there and you know start working. And what's happened for a lot of these organizations, they can't be super picky about who they're hiring because there's such a shortage of behavior analysts and behavior technicians, of course, um, that it, it's, 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 it's created this situation here where it's hard to be choosy, right? And added to that too, I think there's almost like a little bit of a race to the bottom here. I remember being a director of a graduate training program and having to compete with some of these other larger training programs that are offering really low tuition. And it's like, you're on an assembly line and you're just gonna kind of go through and here you are trying to run a quality training program and your tuition might be more expensive. And so trying to compete with that for students who are not aware of what the pass rates are, that they're publicly available, or even what they mean, becomes an interesting marketing challenge. And so that's why I think kind of as, as, as a whole, we do need to decide on some baseline quality standards that we are holding all programs to. Otherwise, we're gonna have folks continuing to cut the fat, cut the fat, until we're left with the bare, bare minimum that just checks off the boxes barely. Exactly, and to build on that, Eric, also thinking about not only the need for additional practitioners, both BCBAs and of course, behavior technicians, 
Um, but also on the other side of it, I'm sure a few as program directors have also seen the challenges around recruiting graduate students. Um, I know in conversations with my colleagues at Regis College, um, especially in the wake of the pandemic, feeling like we're losing students uh, to online programs or, oh, if, if the classes are we're going to be online anyway because, because it was the pandemic, well, why bother paying more for an on-campus program? Um, or why bother going through a program that maybe is more rigorous or takes more time because it has a, a thesis requirement or more rigorous practicum requirement where another program I can graduate in 18 months um, with a lower tuition cost and, and get right out there. Um, so I think it also is something to think about of how kind of how are we recruiting students into this profession? Um, I know always something I like to do when I'm teaching a, a new intro level class, I go, all right, how many of you came into this field? Because you're like, yes, I'm going to be a scientist. And usually not a single hand goes up. Um, and yeah, we usually, we, the, the students that we have coming in are people who are dedicated to, to working with usually with individuals with disabilities and want to make a difference. Um, but also seeing about how can we recruit more students into our field with maybe a stronger science background, um, and making sure that we're reaching more individuals um, so we can fill those graduate programs. And you, and you can't blame the students either for pursuing, you know, yeah. they, college is expensive and, and college prices, mm -hmm. that's a whole other topic, we won't get into that can of worms, but tuition is way too expensive. And so from the student's perspective, yeah, I want to go where, you know, I can do what's necessary. This program is saying they're going to prepare me for the exam and they're much cheaper than this other program. Of course, I'm going to go over here and they're going to allow me to do it online in the evenings. So which works for my work schedule. Right. And so I remember when we initially had a training program at a small private university, we had an intensive practicum program where we had students who were, um, and we're taking, taking do, doing their practicum hours during the day, which meant they couldn't work jobs during the day. That is not feasible for many, many people, especially given the costs of tuition these days. And so trying to balance out, making sure that we're doing quality services, but also able to accommodate the students who are looking for training in the field. That's, that's an interesting, that's an interesting challenge. I think that programs have, and I don't know if, you know, Cody, I know you're the director of a program right now, if you're able to crack that nut, um, more power to you. I know we certainly struggled with that um, in our own training programs, trying to balance that. I, I, I don't know that I could say that I've necessarily cracked that nut, but I have tried to find some, some workarounds because we do have required intensive practicum experiences. You know, students interested in my program are often asking if they can do the practicum through their current employers um, which we don't allow. We we can evaluate employers and potentially, you know, make them an established site, but that's sort of a, another process. But our arrangement is we, we've got some great partners that are really flexible in terms of uh, hours and um, when sort of people are able to do that. And so if we have someone who like works in a school setting or something like that, we have a couple partners that go up until like six or seven o'clock at night in which case they can pop over to that that organization after they finish their job and get their supervision hours and their practicum experiences done through that. And the reason we don't allow like any organization to simply be our practicum partner is that we have very specific projects and activities and experiences that we require our students to get. And, and not every organization can facilitate that uh, appropriately. Yes, and to kind of build on what you were both saying about making sure that our programs are accessible, 
um, to those those candidates who are pursuing um, CBA certification. Um, thinking about those different environments that our students are going to be working in while they're in their graduate programs. Um, so one thing I really liked that, that Regis College did recently as far as timing of classes. Um, so I know I worked in home-based services my, throughout my whole uh, practical experience. So I sometimes even found it challenging to schedule my classes in the evenings, or sometimes we even had weekend intensive classes where I was working most evenings and weekends. Um, but then recently they had some daytime classes available to also kind of accommodate um, people who are working in that environment, whereas also having the evening classes for those who are maybe working in, in schools or in, in daytime clinics. Um, so I think ensuring that kind of flexible accessibility for, for students so they can select um, the most appropriate mode um, that they need in order to, to accomplish their educational goals. To segue us into thinking about recommendations on how to improve the quality of programs, we've sort of been talking about, you know, sort of different components of programs like the intensive practicum requirement. As a field, maybe even as an educator, and then maybe thirdly, as a, as a potential student of a program, what are some considerations for improving the quality of programs or evaluating quality of programs that these different groups should be thinking about? Well, I think the first step is just having more data. Um, so as far as having that publicly available data that students can use to make these decisions, um, and so that researchers can continue to evaluate the effects of these different variables. Um, I think we have a lot of hypotheses and different uh, maybe anecdotal opinions on indicators of program quality, whether it's having a low student to faculty ratio or having an independent project requirement like a thesis. Um, but I think we really need more research to indicate, to verify that these are in fact um, related to putting out higher quality uh, clinicians. So I think the, the first thing that I would love to see um, is particularly if the BACB can publish those additional uh, program characteristics. Good. And, uh, you know, I, there, I think there's a, there's a few things we can do here, um, just to kind of build off of what Kendra was saying there. Um, you know, ABAI or one of these other groups could comprise a panel of experts to determine the best way to evaluate the quality of training programs. This is actually a recommendation that was put forth by Tom Critchfield, Dr. Critchfield, in one of his papers. Um, and also, ABAI should start requiring VCSs to report more annual data. And I think that will also help to prepare them for accreditation, whether as they're entering that tier model, as they are shaping the training programs towards eventual accreditation. Um, we also need to work to identify and promote clear standards and oversight of the candidate's field, field work, supervised experience. Um, and then, you know, you, I'm like a broken record here, I think we need to change the contingencies to promote accreditation. I think the BACB has made some moves in that direction. Um, but there's also smaller little strategies that we can do here where um, that we can do as well, where organizations, for example, that offer tuition assistance to their employees who are interested in becoming BCBA certified, why not instead of just generally offering tuition assistance, why not say the amount of tuition assistance that you are, we're going to give for you is tied to the pass rates of the, of the training program where you are planning on attending. And so if you're going to go to a training program that has higher pass rates, we're going to give you more tuition assistance. If you're going to go for a program that has a history of not having great pass rates, we're going to give you less tuition assistance. 
And so I think kind of building into those contingencies in there, I think is going to be really important. So we are promoting quality within our training programs. Those are great suggestions. I think thinking about the contingencies is a big one, right? I, I know that employers are often nervous to lose their employees, whether that means that they move away or maybe they're worried about hours. And so the sort of online asynchronous programs are very appealing from an employer standpoint because my my employee can prioritize this job but you know potentially you know looking at the data that both of your studies produced the 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 concern there is that may be very short-sighted yeah your employees going through a master's program in, in a, an extremely sort of convenient way of online asynchronous, but depending on the program and its parameters, it may not end up being the highest quality program. And so that person may not actually pass the BCBA exam. One of the things we, we haven't actually talked about is the pass rates on people who don't pass the first time and how horrifyingly low those statistics are. So they're not passing the first time. There's a decent chance they might not be able to pass in general. Um, and then, of course, the fact that even if they did pass, you know, and the idea of an employer, I'm sure, is to retain that person. They may not be, they might not have acquired the the quality training that they need to to thrive as a as an independent behavior analyst. Yeah, and then I, I do want to emphasize too, just just because somebody is taking their training at an asynchronous online program, that doesn't that that in and of itself does not mean that that program is going to offer poor quality training. There's obviously other variables there there that I think all of us here can acknowledge. Um, and so there's, I don't know. It's uh, I think that's why looking at the pass rates in general as one of the quality indicators I think is important because it's not necessarily the mode. There are some correlations that are showing up, but really we want to look at what's the individual training program that we're looking at. What are they? What's their history there? An example there I mentioned earlier: the nine programs that are responsible for fifty percent or more of the number of folks sitting for the exam. There's one program in there. Um, that is actually skewing the data for everybody else. And if you look at their first time pass rates, they're they're doing they're doing pretty good compared compared to everybody else. And they actually bring up that average for the rest of the groups uh, for the for the other eight training programs. We actually pulled out that program to see what the averages were. It was not pretty. And so you know, and that's an that's a large online program. And so I think. Um, I don't know. It's just just something to say there. Looking individually at the programs, um, you know, something that I think is going to be important here. And the quality in the B BACB first time pass rates, I think, is a is a good way or a good metric to look at that can be looked at across programs. Yes, I think absolutely. And this goes to what I was saying earlier about having additional data published on these different characteristics of these programs. Um, certainly we don't want to say that an online program is inherently of poor quality than an on-campus program. Uh, there are a lot of factors that still remain to be investigated. Um, for instance, asynchronous versus synchronous content. Um, I've taught in online programs where there was still a large synchronous component where you were meeting with an instructor and working on small group activities. Um, whereas I know some other programs are completely asynchronous where maybe you're just watching a, a video lecture um, and it's maybe unclear of how much individualized feedback you're getting. So I think having those additional factors um, so we can continue to, to do these analyses, um, but also remembering that we need to interpret these results with caution because 
as we all know, correlation does not imply causation. So here we, we are not randomly assigning students to online versus on-campus programs. Um, when we look at the results of either of our studies and see, okay, the pass rates were actually lower for distance programs compared to on-campus programs, the quality of that program is just one of the potential explanatory variables for that. Yeah, thank you both for, for clarifying that. And I think another piece related to clarification, if, if you know, graduates of training programs go back and, and look at their training program and, and maybe they see the their training program as in fact, you know, one that produces lower pass rates. It doesn't mean that they're not a super high quality behavior analyst, right? It just means that that program, the, the data from that program would indicate that the in general they're not training people to meet that bare minimum standard. It doesn't mean that people cannot exceed the standards in place in their program and go on to be great behavior analysts. It's just looking at overall quality indicators of that program and the sort of percentage of, of people they're preparing to, to pass that exam. Now, as we sort of look to wrap things up, we have throughout the conversation, I think, hit on a few different interesting related topics. You, you both sort of referenced some related research, but for people interested in this topic, are there any recommendations either of you have uh, for research they could check out or resources they could check out or potential future research they should think about? Any recommendations for those folks? I was going to recommend Kendra's paper. <laughs> Perfect. I was going to recommend Eric's paper. <laughs> there we go. Um, Self-serving here, right? No, um, you know, I, I think there's there's been some really interesting work here. And I think some of the pieces that were already mentioned, including uh, Shepley's piece there, uh, that was another important one recently that that came out. Um, and, but even almost going a little bit beyond this and just kind of generally understanding what accreditation means. And so I'm going to kind of go off script here a little bit, Cody, and recommend that maybe don't, you know, read the literature, of course, but instead also, maybe not instead of it, but also let's look at understanding what accreditation actually means. So go on ABAI's website, read up on it, see if the standards actually match what you think a quality program training program should actually be offering. Um, also, I think, you know, generally being coming familiar with where the BACB first time pass rates are and being able to disseminate that information to folks who are interested in applying to to get a to further their education. I think that's something that's missing there, right? So we have folks who are interested in applying to programs. They don't know about BACD first time pass rates. And so you should have that ready. That when somebody says, hey, I'm thinking about getting training in the field, say, here, check these out. And then of course tell them like this is not the end all be all, but it might give you a general idea of training programs you might want to look at. And so maybe send them that and send them a list of the ABI programs that are accredited, right? So I would check these out and then also keep an eye, you know, on these BACB first time pass rates. And that's usually when folks ask me for, you know, what, which training program should I go to? Those are the two resources that I cite. So I would know where those are and I would share those. Um, and I would have an understanding of the difference between accreditation and DCS. Absolutely. And I think in addition to that, that's um, like a potential graduate students are asking me, well, how do I decide on, on which graduate program to apply to? Usually the first thing I'll point them to is the pass rate, but then also thinking about those other variables to consider. So things like, do you learn better on campus versus um, in an online format? 
Um, what are your thoughts on having the requirement of a thesis or an optional thesis or more a capstone project? And what are some other factors like average class size or how much of the content is synchronous versus asynchronous? Um, so I think educating consumers about those different variables that will influence their decision in addition to pass rates. I think another big area that we need to investigate are what are some other quality indicators of behavior analysts? Um, so we were talking about this whole episode that the, the pass rate is but the floor. It is the minimal competency um, to, to call yourself a behavior analyst. Um, but how else could we be measuring um, the quality of behavior analysts that programs are putting out? I know we love objective data and things like could we measure how many graduates go on to a PhD program or how many graduates go on to publish. But even beyond that, how many graduates go on to just be really high quality clinicians? Um, so I think that's something our field can, can give a lot of thought to. Great food for thought there. I think I could spend all day speaking with you both about this topic, but I want to be respectful of everyone's time. And so with that, I'll just say Thank you both so much for putting in the work to to come up with this research and, and share your results in these papers and then coming on this show today to talk about them. Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity, Cody. Thank you for giving giving us a, a chance to be able to share our work. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Before you leave, please remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use to listen to the episode. Also, find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and suggest recent bat papers that we should review. Finally, I'd like to thank a few people for helping create this podcast. Thanks to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Perrin. And thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>